So Crisp, a tasty bite-sized podcast that serves business, bravery, branding, beauty, sex, love, motherhood, womanhood, feminism, labels, psychology, marketing, messaging, mavenry, musicals, and the mess we call life. All deliciously dished up and ready to consume. In fact, is there anything we don't discuss? Not with Jay Crisp Crow, copywriting queen from Crisp Copy in the kitchen. I hope you're hungry. This episode of So Crisp is a little different than other So Crisp episodes you've consumed. The format is new to me and my team, and that makes us sound super professional. But in reality, it's me and my adult son, who is a whiz at the tech. But I'm confident you'll still be able to follow along. Instead of one live guest, this episode features multiple sets of audio from some really fabulous women. Our guests today are Tori Hushka, Monique Mulligan and Laura Graves. These guests are all women who made the transition from whatever they were before to publish authors and novelists. Some of them even published books recently during COVID. Now, it's no secret I sometimes treat my own podcast like a therapy session or, in this case, a bit of an opportunity to have a massive brain pick. And I thought if I wanted to know how people made a transition from business owner or career woman or mother to published author, perhaps some of you lovely listeners would like to hear about that too. So on with the show. This is Tori. First up, she found herself becoming an accidental novelist, but has always been a writer. Her first published book is a fiction novel, Grace Under Pressure, and the link to buy can be found in our show notes. I tell you, when Tori says she started her first book while recovering from glandular fever after kissing a boy, I actually hollered at my screen, we're sisters, which is exactly how I caught glandular fever, which then derailed my life and means now I'm a copywriter and a consultant rather than a musical theatre star. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's the real reason, right? It's not that I didn't have the chops to become a singing sensation, Leave me to my delusions. Let's listen to Tori's authoring beginnings. I asked Tori, were you already a writer? And if so, did your previous experience help or hinder your process? Were you working in another career? How did these experiences help or get in the way? Was there like a transition or a bit of an overlap with both careers? And here's what she had to say. I became something of an accidental novelist. I have one terrible novel that sits in a drawer upstairs that I started when I was 21, all about um, 21st birthday parties in Sydney um, that was sort of a satire. I started writing that when I got glandular fever badly after a boy kissed me and didn't tell me that he both had a girlfriend and um, and Epstein Barr. So writing was a way to keep me in contact with my friends because I would send them chapters after I was finished. Um, that novel will never see the side of day, light of day, but um, my most recent one came after I had my second child and um, I had been sitting on the side of soft play parks for a very long time with both children just tapping out little notes on my phone um, and fantasising about what it might be like to live in a village of women. Um, I said it one day once too often to a friend of mine and she said, Tori, can you stop talking about it and can you just write this thing? And so Grace Under Pressure was born from that. Um, before that, I was a food writer. So I've published two cookbooks and um, have been doing copywriting for Harris Farm. So there's a lot of food content in Grace Under Pressure. Um, originally, there were recipes peppered the whole way out it. Um, these days, it's more there in the chapter titles. There are some in the back of the book. But um, clinging to the clutch of that I was once a food writer was one of the ways that sort of gave me some confidence to breach slowly into fiction. Um, and now I think that there's a really nice marriage between the two of them. 
Laura Graves is a multi-award-winning author and started her professional career writing as a journalist. She's now full-time as a writer with nine books under her belt. And here's a little of her answers to the same questions. Where did you start? Did you know about writing? What was the connection between your old job and your authoring one? I also asked her about what her best decisions have been. Take a listen. Yes, I was already a writer. I've been a writer for hire my entire professional career. I got a journalism cadetship on a daily newspaper literally weeks after I finished high school. So I was such a baby. I turned 17 in October and then I started my cadetship in January. So, I mean, I was a literal child. (laughs) I look back now and think, oh, I was so little and so naive and, you know, full of the wonders of the world. Um, But even as I was working as a journalist, I did always have this dream of, of being an author. And in fact, I've only ever wanted to be an author. I never considered any career but writing in one form or another. Literally since I was four or five years old, I've been scribbling stories and poems and, you know, writing little plays and making all my friends act them out and that kind of thing. So the way that I actually transitioned from being a journalist to being an author was um, I had been writing a novel on and off over many years, mostly off because as I've previously mentioned, I am an Olympic gold medal winning (laughs) procrastinator. But I finally finished that novel when I was 28. um, And soon after that, I went freelance. I left my last in-house magazine job to become a freelance journalist. And I put the novel in a drawer, um, really mostly just happy to have finally finished it. Uh, a little while later, a friend of mine published a romantic comedy novel through Penguin and I read her book and loved it and thought, you know, that manuscript that I've got in my bottom drawer um, is stylistically kind of similar to this book in terms of it's a romance, but it's funny as well. And there's other things going on beyond just the love story. So I pulled it out of the drawer and I sent it off to Penguin. And when I mean I pulled it out and sent it, that's what I did. I didn't reread it. I didn't polish it. It had been in a drawer for five years and I didn't update any of the pop culture references or anything. I just sent it off and then they rang me and I thought it would be to say, you know, Hey, we liked it, but it needs a ton of work, which would have been entirely understandable because, you know, it had been in the drawer, but they said, we want to publish it. And I was like, but, uh, but what, I mean, I was literally speechless, which as you may have gathered so far is not my usual state of being. So it was incredibly delightful and shocking in the best possible way. Um, And, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. Nine books later, I'm still going strong. So there was a transition uh, or an overlap. I continued to do freelance journalism for several years But now I'm at a point where I'm a full-time author and I could not be happier about it. So there's a running theme here, writers becoming authors. This is Monique Mulligan speaking about the skills that journalism gave her before becoming a published fiction author. I've always been a writer in some shape or form since I left school. I've wanted to be a journalist when I left school and I really quickly decided against that while I was in university. Um, I I don't think I was ready for it then. I I wasn't feeling like I was that kind of person who could go and just walk up to strangers and say, hey, you know, this happened to you. Can you tell me how you feel about that? I found it intrusive and um, too confronting for where I was in my life at that particular point. But 
life often goes full circle. And so in my 30s, I became a journalist and, and spent quite a few years working as a journalist and then a news editor. And the favourite kind of stories I used to write were always the feature stories, the ones where I could go and interview people about their passions, about what they did and why they did it, you know, whether it was their prize-winning cats or their beautiful garden or something like that, you know, the cakes that had won prizes at the Royal Show. Those stories, when you see people talking about something that makes them happy, they were my favourite kinds of stories to write. And I went from there into publicity and marketing and I'm still working in marketing now part-time. I suppose if I look back at, at my career as a journalist, you know, and how it's helped me as a writer now, of course it helps you because you're, you're curious and you're always looking and watching and observing people and, and things around you. So I think it definitely helps me in terms of observational skills and I suppose getting to know people and, and looking for what is the real story here, asking questions as well. Those are skills that journalism really gave me and have helped me with my writing. But I did find journalism to be less of a place where I could be creative. And so when I felt that urge to, to seize the day and to start to write creatively, it was around the time when I actually moved from journalism into another stage of my career, which was the, the publicity and marketing. And I just found journalism didn't work with my family life. It was very high pressure. We had four teenagers at home. So this working, working with publicity and marketing just gave me a chance to work more from home and to have more time for my family, but then to open up some space for writing creatively. I started with short stories and wrote some short rom-coms for anthology, which were, which were fun to write. And I think if I was going to write more romances, it would definitely be rom-coms. But it's not what I wanted to write. I also wrote some children's books. I wrote three children's books, actually. Uh, one of them, probably the best known at the moment, is called Fergus the Farting Dragon. And sometimes I think I'm always going to have that that book about a farting dragon following me around everywhere. And I think, oh gosh, was it a mistake to, to write under the same name, put my novel under the same name as my children's books. But I made the choice to just own that and to, to go with it. And I don't know. I don't know that it is a mistake. Sometimes I think, hey, am I undermining my credibility? But then when I see the, the way children respond to that particular book, I think, look, they love it. They still love this book. It's still getting sales. Just go with it. Of course, I'm still working in marketing and that's come in handy for me for releasing a debut novel because there's certainly contacts that I have at that you know have made that for me maybe in some cases a little bit easier than people who are starting you know with no marketing experience at all um yeah it's it's a it's a funny thing you you learn to seize opportunities don't you when you're marketing yourself you 
even if you don't want to put yourself out there quite as much, you have to. And you really have to stop hiding and, and say, hey, look at me, look at my book. And you've got to keep on doing it and find different ways and, and learn when one way isn't working and when you've got to try a new way. I'm lucky I've got some skills in that area and, and that's helping me. Okay. But there's still a pretty decent jump between journalist or content writer or marketer to figuring out what and how to write an entire actual book. I wanted to know some details about that process. And these amazing women were happy to help me understand how they did it. I asked them, what was your process when writing? Did you hire a coach? Did you take a course? Did you just fly by the seat of your pants? Did you plot out every chapter or just start writing from the beginning? And what kept kept you going and being super consistent? Here's Monique again. She is an author, an interviewer, and a founder of the Stories on Stage program. Monique's newest book is called Wherever You Go. And of course, the link to Snaffle That is in our show notes. Listen to what Monique has to say about having a one-sided argument with a book she purchased right before she actually started writing this novel and what keeps her really consistent. I didn't do a course. I didn't hire a coach. I just jumped right into writing. It had taken me so long to get started. It was like a now or never thing. I was reading this book called How to Write Your Blockbuster by Fiona McIntosh. And I distinctly remember arguing with her while I was cooking one night. I had the book in one hand and a wooden spoon in the other. And I was stirring and trying to kind of read over the sound of teenagers running around through the house and asking for things. And it was telling me, you know, to basically get off my butt and start writing. And I was saying, Fiona, you don't understand. You don't know what my life is like. And then straight under that, it's like, you're going to have all these excuses. I've heard every excuse there ever is and stop making excuses. And I thought, what? And I still kept arguing with this imaginary Fiona in my kitchen and trying to explain it to her. But deep down, I knew that if I didn't just start writing and stop waiting for one day, then it was just never going to happen. So I did. I didn't plot anything. I'm really a pantser, which surprised another author friend of mine, Billy Malone. She was interviewing me at a book launch recently and she asked me, you know, are you a plotter or a pantser? And she had this smile on her face like, I know what the answer is because she knows me quite well. She knows that I'm a very organized kind of person normally and I like to be prepared for things. And she was just gobsmacked when I said, no, I'm actually a pantser, especially for this particular book, my first book. And it's because I just wanted to write organically and let the story flow. And here's Laura. So I started out as a journalist. I've worked for newspapers, magazines, websites. I've done one-off editorial projects. I've done every kind of writing you can imagine under the sun for more than 20 years. And now I write books full time. So my process for the various kinds of writing has been a little different. When I was a journalist, I would always receive a brief or I would generate a story idea on my own and then I would write to very specific kind of parameters, always hitting a deadline, 
um, essentially doing as I was told by the editor or the boss. It's a little bit different now that I'm a full-time author. I'm my own boss. My creative process is, hmm, what's the best word? Completely chaotic. <laughs> um, my process is essentially procrastinate for as long as possible, then panic. Um, and then somehow a book comes out, which is pretty amazing. Um, my process is really not much of a process at all. I've written nine books now and I'm actually not entirely sure how any of them got done <laughs> um, because yeah, I'm a bit haphazard. Um, I've got a young daughter, so I only have school hours available in which to write. Um, and as much as I love writing, when I'm in the thick of it, I will usually do anything but. Um, but professionally speaking, my process is always to plot first. When I'm writing fiction, I do an outline of the full story and then I start writing at chapter one and I go chronologically through the book until I get to those sweet, sweet words, the end. When I'm writing nonfiction, I do all my research and all my interviews first and then I start writing. I know a lot of writers do the research um, and the writing simultaneously. For whatever reason, I can't work like that. So that's my process, such as it is. And somehow the work gets done. It's pretty amazing, really. Okay, so that sounds extraordinarily similar to how I create everything, including courses, client work, and anything I write for myself. I mean, I feel pretty buoyed by my personal process and the fact it doesn't have to change that much to be able to publish an actual tangible book. Laura, you've just given me and people like me a little spark of hope. However, Laura doesn't do a vomit draft. Big gasp. Crisp copy alumni and showstopper sales page writers will have heard me talk about this, the vomit draft. I find it so helpful, but it's fascinating to hear Laura talk about editing as she writes. The way I work, I often hear writers talk about doing a vomit draft first. So their first draft of any book or any project is literally just about getting the words out of their head and onto the paper or the screen in some kind of order. And then they go back and make it good. You know, they edit it and they fix it. I personally don't work that way. I like my first draft to be as good as it can possibly be. Um, and I think that's because of my background in journalism. I always had to edit as I went along as a journalist. I didn't have the luxury of doing drafts. I had to just kind of bang the story out and, and get it in by deadline. And so I approach writing books in the same way. Um, I always edit as I go so that by the time I get to the end of the book, there's usually, touch wood, not a ton of work that needs to be done. Um, and in fact, my editor at Penguin, which is my publisher, does tell me that he always appreciates how clean my manuscripts are when he receives them. So there's not heaps of work that he needs to do. Um, yeah, so I guess it makes the going a little bit slower because I'm constantly editing as I go rather than just charging through from start to finish. But it means there's less work for me to do at the end. And honestly, I'm inherently a very lazy person and having less work to do is always my preference. You may know you want to write a book, but you're not quite sure about what to write it about yet. Here's Laura, then Monique, giving hope to those of us who identify as raging enthusiasts. It's actually really interesting the way I came to be writing books about dogs. Um, I am an avowed crazy dog lady. I've been obsessed with dogs my entire life. And the three novels that I've written, although they're not about dogs, all feature a you know, large cast of canine characters. 
um, my heroines always have dogs or they're vets or they work with dogs or, you know, something like that. So when it came to writing my first nonfiction dog book, my editor at Penguin actually got in touch with me and said, look, we want to put out some kind of uplifting, inspirational dog book, but I didn't know anything about dogs. And I know that you're a dog person and would you like to write it? To which I replied, uh, yes, how is this even a question? Of course, I immediately want to do this. Let's do it right away. So I pitched them a bunch of different potential concepts. I think it was 10 different ideas I gave them. And they chose the one they liked best, which became my first book, Incredible Dog Journeys. Um, and, you know, six more dog books later, I'm still going. Deciding what to write about can be hard at times because right now I'm in that position of, of which book am I going to write next? Am I going to write a follow-up to wherever you go or am I going to drag out a manuscript I've already completed and revise that because I've, I've had some ideas of how to, to deepen and, and make that book much more complex, um, which would, would fit what the book is about more. And I'm still not sure. I'm still struggling to write actually after releasing that first book. And I have to tell myself there is no rush. There is no deadline. I only released the book six weeks ago. Why are you pushing yourself? But, you know, there's that part of me that's saying, you need to get started. You need to get onto the next book. You need to, you know, do this. Should, should, should. I need to really get out of that. So choosing what to write now is actually... Um, driving me a bit nuts at the moment but when I wrote wherever you go I knew that I wanted to write about the quote wherever you go there you are I knew I wanted to write about food in fiction I loved foodie fiction I love movies that have got lots of food in them the movie chocolate the book chocolate oh, I love that book um like water for chocolate Babette's feast all of those things inspired me so much and so I knew that food would be a massive component of my book and then I guess that the, the storyline my story deals with grief and loss and a marriage that's disintegrating. You know I struggle to name a course or program offering for myself and that's a completely editable task. Can you imagine the decision-making process to name a book? You can't go back and change the name of a book Here's Monique and then Laura and then how Tori named Grace Under Pressure. The title comes from a quote, Wherever You Go, There You Are by John Kabat-Zinn. I always knew that this was going to be the title for my book. It, it just fit the story so well, but it also allowed me to explore through this story what that quote meant to me back when I'd first heard it. It's a really, I don't know, a quote that really resonates with me because it talks about you can run and you can try to hide from the things that have hurt you and, and given you pain and the baggage that you carry, but it always comes with you and it always catches up with you if you don't deal with it, if you don't find a way to live with what you've been through. When you stick your head in the sand or when you try to take yourself off to somewhere else to escape it, it doesn't work. It might for a while, but it doesn't. And that concept was one I really wanted to explore with this book. So I did. I've actually written nine books. 
three romantic comedy novels and six non-fiction collections of real-life stories about amazing dogs. My latest book is called Extraordinary Old Dogs, and it kind of does what it says on the tin. I mean, the name is pretty reflective of the content of the book. There's 15 stories in there, and each one of them is about a real dog, a senior canine who's done something amazing with their life. So the way I name my books is I try to come up with something a little bit snappy, you know, a bit catchy, um, but that also really clearly sums up what the book's about. Grace had quite a few names before it came to be called Grace. Um, It's the story of a group of harried mums on the northern beaches of Sydney who ditch their spouses and start living together in a commune. Um, In the beginning, one of the versions was the poppy seed commune, um, the mummune, and I think even 65 Dick Street. God knows why. Um, Grace Under Pressure came to be the title because A, Grace was the protagonist's name, and then secondly, because it really conveyed the only option available for the characters. Just as an aside, if anyone wants to set up a Ma commune with me, 63 Dick Street is calling us. Plenty of us want to write a book, but most of us don't. So what do these women have in their kind of driving force arsenal that got them and then keeps them going? Firstly, here's Monique and then Laura. I knew the book had legs when I first started to work with a critique partner in the very early drafting stages of wherever you go. It was actually quite a big motivation as well to write at that point because each month we would meet and we would share chapters of each of our work with each other and, and read it. And so it you know meant I had to have something new for her each each month and by then usually I had a few chapters to give her. And and Maureen is one of my really good friends and she was just this absolutely gorgeous person to have as a critique partner because she makes you feel really, really good about what you're writing. But she would read my chapters and she would look up and her eyes would be shining with tears and she just has this kind of sobby voice and she'd say, oh, Monique, I just love how you wrote this part here. And like such a, you know, way to make me feel good to kind of um, boost the ego about my writing. And, you know, there's good and there's bad in that because it's uh, a bit more of a letdown when other people don't feel quite the same way. Um, so that really kept me going at that, that starting point. I thought, oh, this actually has got something. I'm making somebody feel something about what I'm writing. So I've got to keep on going with this. The other time was when I got my first rejection, actually, which you wouldn't think a rejection would make you think, hey, I've got something. But it was what you'd call a good rejection because she said, you've got something here. This is beautiful writing. There's a, a, a great story here, but it needs more work. It's not ready yet. So to me, that, that really gave me that courage to just keep on going. It's a different story with every single one of my books. That first romantic comedy novel that I published was inspired by something that had happened to me. The book isn't, um, you know, autobiographical. Nothing that happens in the book is how the situation actually unfolded. But a situation that, that I experienced in my own life gave me that kernel of an idea and then I developed it into a story. 
My latest book, Extraordinary Old Dogs, was inspired by my old dog, Tex. He's 13 and um, he has a laundry list of medical issues, including but very much not limited to leukaemia, epilepsy, and an incurable lung disease, my poor darling baby boy. Um, and one afternoon I was trying to get him to take a pill and he wouldn't take it. And so I was trying to hide it in various foodstuffs <laughs> to encourage him to, to take it. And it suddenly dawned on me that so many people just wouldn't bother with this kind of rigmarole for a dog. So many people would just abandon that dog or worse, you know, have that dog put down, which ugh, makes me shudder at the thought. And I just thought, that's so sad because sure, he's old and he's ill, but he has a beautiful life and he, he does so much for me and he has so much to offer the world. And I knew in that instant that I needed to share the stories of other old dogs that are doing incredible things. And so Extraordinary Old Dogs was born. I believe most of us have at least one book in us, but how do we know it's going to be any good not all of us are fortunate enough to have enough personal brand firepower to be approached by publishers asking us for our stories. So I wanted to know how these women figured they'd actually be able to sell their books. And do they ever get the wobbles? Spoiler alert, Laura says yes, just about every time. God, that's a good question. And the answer is yes. As I say, I've written nine books. I've signed a contract for my 10th book, which will be out next year. And yet every single time I come to write my next book, I think, I can't do this. What am I, I, who am I kidding? Who am I to think I can write an entire book? It's crazy. So yeah, that happens every single time. And I wish I could tell you that it gets easier or that it goes away. And maybe it does for some people, but you know, I'm just not one of those people. I just have to push through it and get to a point where I'm in a flow. And when I get in that flow, oh God, it's the greatest feeling in the world. I think this is amazing. Why don't I just do this every minute of every day? But you know, lazy, that's why. <laughs> and while this all sounds like supremely hard work, there are rewards, says Laura. And then we'll hear again from Monique on rewards, the motivation, her process, and how it all got easier. The rewards or benefits once I'd finished, well, the biggest reward for me is that this is my career. Um, that's what I still can't even quite wrap my head around after nine books. Um, every single time I receive an author copy of one of my book and I one of my books and I open that envelope and I take out a book with my name on it. I mean, what are you crazy? A book with my name on it is on the shelves in bookshops and people pay money for it and they read it and hopefully they enjoy it. I mean, that is nuts. The best part was the first time I held an actual physical book in my hands that had my name on the cover. I filmed that moment because I thought I might put it on social media or something, but then I bawled like an infant <laughs> because I was so overwhelmed by the moment. So I decided to keep that one to myself. I think the best decision for me was deciding that even though writing books is a full-time job that doesn't bring in a full-time wage, I decided that I was going to do it full-time. I was essentially going to stop the um, freelance writing that I was doing, the freelance journalism, and just do the books. And I decided to do that because, you know, although I'm always really careful to um, 
clarify that it's not like I think my job is hard in the way that, you know, saving lives is hard or being a coal miner is hard. Um, it is taxing. It's mentally really taxing. And sometimes it brings up issues or, or parts of yourself that are tricky to address or to, to deal with. Um, so I decided that I would do it full time. And once I'd submitted a book, I would have a little break before I started the next one rather than cramming tons of freelance writing into that downtime. So that's been really good for me in terms of the way I work and my mental health and kind of remaining fresh and remaining passionate about writing books. Personally, I'm a plotter. I really like to have an outline, usually three to five pages of what I'm going to write before I write it. Or if it's nonfiction, I do a couple of paragraphs of an outline of each of the real life stories that I want to include in one of my book, which just is a, a handy reminder of, you know, the key beats that I want to hit and, you know, the emotional um, turning points and, and the story arcs. So, so I know some people are pantsers. They just, you know, write and make it up as they go along and write as they feel. And that's awesome if that works for you. That doesn't really work for me because I'm very scatterbrained and um, <laughs> I like to procrastinate. So I need to have a little bit of a, a structure, a little bit of a roadmap for myself. So I would recommend if people's brains work in a similar way to my brain does, that definitely doing a bit of pre-writing before you start the writing can be super helpful. Why do I want to write a novel? Oh, just, you know, I think I really wanted to hold my own book. It was like this dream I'd had for so long. And I know it's not, you know, I'm not the only person who's had that dream, but I just wanted it so much. I, I have so many friends who are authors. I have interviewed authors for many years. I have, I run a stories on stage program where I interview authors. I have a blog where I interview them and where I was reviewing books for a long time. And I just always had this, this sense that I wanted that moment for myself too. I wanted to hold a book that I had written so I made it happen, but it was, it was really hard. I found that the routine, getting a routine and, and finding a discipline for writing really hard to come by. People say that you should write every day and it just wasn't practical for me. I find that there isn't a one size fits all kind of advice for a writer you have to try different things to see what works for you and writing every day for my novel didn't work it just it just actually stressed me out even more if I tried to do that so in those early days of writing wherever you go I was always working in the gaps of life it was, you know, between taking kids on a driving lesson or driving them to work or picking them up from school or things like that. And they would always interrupt me. And it was very difficult in a, in a house with six people to find space to write and or time to go out to, to cafes and write. And sometimes I was able to do that. But financially, that wasn't even an option a lot of the time. So the, the, the first draft was really written in the gaps of life. Um, over time, I managed to carve out a weekend routine for myself. And, and now that I've only got one out of four at home still, who's, you know, 
looking after herself now, she's nearly 20, it's so much easier for me to have that routine. So on the weekends, in the afternoons, that's my writing time. The best part about being a novelist is getting messages and emails from people who tell you why they loved your book in, in this lovely amount of detail where they, they just give you a little insight to their own self and to how the book came to them at exactly the right time for them. And those moments are so precious because you know that in some way you've touched someone's heart through your story. And for me, not much beats that, that kind of warm feeling that goes through you when someone takes the time to tell you what your book meant to them. There are downsides. Here's Laura about the commitments required to sell books and how that can be a bit of a struggle. The negatives for me are I have an anxiety disorder and associated with having a book out is that you need to promote said book. And don't get me wrong, it's such a privilege that people want to talk to me about my work and that they want to promote and publicize my book. That's wonderful. And I'm so grateful to those people for, you know, helping me sell books and feed my family. Um, but as someone with anxiety, it's, um, I have to really psych myself up to do those interviews. Um, I used to be terrified, for example, of speaking on the radio. Um, I'd go on TV and have no problem, but being on the radio just scared the bejesus out of me. Um, so it's taken me a number of years to work through that and I still get nervous before any interview that I do, but I'm, I'm through practice, uh, through, you know, flexing that muscle, I'm getting better at it. So that could be construed as a negative. The other negative, I suppose, is that it's a job now. So as much as I still love it and as much as it is my dream job, it is a job and I have deadlines to hit and I have certain parameters that I work within and certain criteria that I have to fulfill. So that can take a little bit of the shine off it, I suppose. But, you know, it's still pretty damn shiny. <laughs> For someone who used to be scared of going on the radio, I'm pretty super appreciative Laura put her hand up for this interview. And here's Monique about the self-doubt and her own special voice, Regina, and what vulnerabilities writing a book can bring up. And unlike some of the other authors, Monique is still working her full-time job. Have a listen. Self-doubt. Oh, my goodness. Self-doubt is just such a, such a big thing for me at times. I've actually run courses on self-doubt. I've gone to different um, writing centers and I've gone to small groups and I've talked at schools and you know with with children at libraries about self-doubt and how it actually affects all creative people at some point or another and for me it can come just when I'm driving along I was driving to a book week talk the other day and suddenly this self-doubt monster kind of goes oh, you know, you've just completely written or, or prepared an entirely wrong presentation for this group. They're going to hate it. You've really stuffed up. And I was calling this, this um, self-doubt monster um, Regina from Mean Girls, you know, and it's like, look, Regina, I don't have time for this right now. You need to, to get lost and I'm just going to go there and deal with it and 
talk about what I'm going to talk about and bugger off basically. So, so that worked really well on, on that day. And the amazing thing was I talked to these kids all about, this was high school kids and I talked to them all about self-doubt and resilience and they responded so much better than I expected. And I just, you know, kind of wished Regina was right in front of me. I could have just gone like, you know, no, I, I did it. Look at me. Look at me. You've got this. So I released my debut novel in September and it was such a strange mix of nervous exhilaration on that day because I was so excited, you know, to finally have that book, to hold that book I was talking about, the book I was dreaming about, and to, to say, hey, I've actually done it and, and, you know, feel that pride in myself, I suppose, for, for fighting off self-doubt, for fighting off, you know, finding time to actually get it done and just believing myself in myself the whole way. Uh, but then, of course, there's that vulnerability because you have to let go of your book. You have to put it out there into the world and it's out of your control what happens next. Logically, you know that some people are going to love what you wrote. You also know that some are going to not love it. And let's face it, that's entirely fair. You don't love everything that you read. You don't love everything that you eat, that you drink, that you watch. So why should everyone else? But of course, you can say that to yourself, but when a review comes in that's negative or mean or you know, some troll gets hold of you, your book, then it's really hard. You've really got to work hard to remind yourself of, of you know, hey, you know, not everyone's going to like your book toughen up. My book is still finding its way at the moment. I released it in September. It was a really difficult time to, to release a book in one way because everybody was releasing books. They'd all been held off due to COVID and suddenly Craig Sylvie, Trent Dalton, lots and lots of other people were releasing these blockbuster books everyone had been waiting for for months. And so that's, that makes it really hard when you're a, and coming from a very small press and you've got to try to get yourself seen in there, in this, you know, you're like that little fish in a great big river. Uh, but you know what? I just kind of look at it that my book is like a slow cooking dish that's on the stove and this aroma is just slowly being released out and people are coming by and saying, Mm, what's that? That smells good. I want some of that. And that's kind of how I tell myself to think about my book. It's not going to make a million dollars straight away, Dad. It's just not. But it's going, to, it's going to make an impact on some people. And I'm getting this feedback that just warms my heart and just has made all the tears, all the years worthwhile. I think one of the other things that's difficult is because my book was indie published through Pilyara Press, which is a collective of authors, you feel sometimes like you're getting dismissed as if it's not gone through the proper rigorous kind of editing and process as, say, a book from a traditional publishing house, which 
In the case of this book and all the books published by Puyao Press, that's entirely incorrect because it has a very rigorous process with many eyes on each book. But there's that perception, isn't there, that, that indie publishing is not, not as good and that's really hard to, to sometimes have to face all the time. Deciding what to write about can be hard at times because right now I'm in that position of, of which book am I going to write next? Am I going to write a follow-up to wherever you go or am I going to drag out a manuscript I've already completed and revise that because I've, I've had some ideas of how to, to deepen and, and make that book much more complex, um, which would, would fit what the book is about more. And I'm still not sure, I'm still struggling to write actually after releasing that first book. And I have to tell myself there is no rush, there is no deadline. I only released the book six weeks ago. Why are you pushing yourself? But you know, there's that part of me that's saying, you need to get started, you need to get onto the next book, you need to, you know, do this, should, should, should. I need to really get out of that. So choosing what to write now is actually um, driving me a bit nuts at the moment. But when I wrote Wherever You Go, I knew that I wanted to write about the quote, Wherever You Go, There You Are. I knew I wanted to write about food in fiction. I loved foodie fiction. I love movies that have got lots of food in them. The movie Chocolat, the book Chocolat. Oh, I love that book. Um, like Water for Chocolate, Babette's Feast. All of those things inspired me so much. And so I knew that food would be a massive component of my book. And then I guess that the, the storyline, my story deals with grief and loss and a marriage that's disintegrating. It came from a newspaper article, which, you know, it's not really that unusual for someone who's a former journalist to, to find inspiration in something like that. Finally, the best decisions these women have made as part of this book authoring process and any last tips Here's what Tori and then Laura and then Monique had to say about some lessons learned. A really great decision that came for me was probably in about draft three or four when my agent had taken a first look at it and told me to take all of the recipes that I had peppered throughout Grace Under Pressure out. I'd been leaning on them really heavily as a narrative device, I think because I was uncomfortable making a direct transfer from being a food writer and a cookbook writer to being a fiction author. So I was really using them as a crutch. The recipes um, were things that were written by the protagonist, Grace, as she traced her pregnancy going from a size of a poppy seed to a pumpkin. So there was a recipe for each week of the pregnancy, um, which is fine, and the recipes exist, and they're great, and they're delicious, but they really took the reader out of the story. And as soon as I freed myself from that kind of constraint, the voices of the other women in the book really came out more. Um, and I think if I hadn't have had my agent say, no, they don't belong there and this is fiction and just go for it, then it would be a much, much poorer book than it is today. I think the best decision for me was deciding that even though writing books is a full-time job that doesn't bring in a full-time wage, I decided that I was going to do it full time. I was essentially going to stop the um, freelance writing that I was doing, the freelance journalism, and just do the books. And I decided to do that because 
you know, although I'm always really careful to um, clarify that it's not like I think my job is hard in the way that, you know, saving lives is hard or being a coal miner is hard. Um, it is taxing. It's mentally really taxing. And sometimes it brings up issues or, or parts of yourself that are tricky to address or to, to deal with. Um, so I decided that I would do it full time. And once I'd submitted a book, I would have a little break before I started the next one rather than cramming tons of freelance writing into that downtime. So that's been really good for me in terms of the way I work and my mental health and kind of remaining fresh and remaining passionate about writing books. Personally, I'm a plotter. I really like to have an outline, usually three to five pages of what I'm going to write before I write it. Or if it's nonfiction, I do a couple of paragraphs of an outline of each of the real life stories that I want to include in one of my book, which just is a, a handy reminder of, you know, the key beats that I want to hit and, you know, the emotional um, turning points and, and the story arcs. So, so I know some people are pantsers. They just, you know, write and make it up as they go along and write as they feel. And that's awesome if that works for you. That doesn't really work for me because I'm very scatterbrained and um, <laughs> but I like to procrastinate. So I need to have a little bit of a, a structure, a little bit of a roadmap for myself. So I would recommend if people's brains work in a similar way to my brain does, that definitely doing a bit of pre-writing before you start the writing can be super helpful. Part of being a writer and writing a novel means making lots and lots of mistakes, Jay. It's, you know, I've made so many mistakes and I could even say that not really plotting at all was, I wouldn't say it was a mistake, it's how I had to learn. But my goodness, I could have maybe saved myself a lot more rewriting if I had structured it a little bit more in the beginning. But, you know, other mistakes, probably sending my, my book off to agents before it was fully ready. You know, you've got people who are reading it and I, I'm talking about people who've been published authors and they're saying, this is great. I would send this to an author, now, to, to an agent now. So I did. And then suddenly it would be, no, this book's not ready for publication yet because it hasn't got enough conflict. It's, you know, not enough is happening in this story. There's not enough layers. That was the feedback I got multiple times, Jay. It was so disheartening at, at times because on one hand people were saying, I think this is ready to send on. And on the other I'm being told it's definitely not ready. For me, the best decision I made during the process of writing Wherever You Go was accepting an invitation to be part of Pilyara Press. Let me tell you a bit about Pilyara Press. It's, it's this amazing collective of women, like a sisterhood, women who have most of them been traditionally published authors who have are very highly skilled in different areas of writing there's somebody who's been proofreading and editing editing for over 30 years um, another person who's got decades of editing experience and so on you know copy editing and public relations experience so we're all bringing to the table these skills that we share so somebody structurally edited my book someone else copy edited my book, someone else proofread my book. 
and then it was formatted by another person. And we've got a wonderful male team member, an honorary male team member who does the uh, public relations for us and reaches out to newspapers on our behalf. And to have these kinds of skills there and we're all working together and helping each other is such a wonderful thing to do. I'm so fortunate to have this team, to be part of this team, but to have this team, you know, they've all got my back. I'm just, just thrilled that that opportunity came my way. I sometimes think like, how do you, t how do you turn an idea into a story? And when I look at trying to write another book now, I sometimes have this thought like, how do you write a book? And I can hear the ridiculousness of that question because I have a book that's published, but I'm at this kind of point in my head right now where it's not, it's not clear to me where I need to go next or even where I want to go next with it. And so I'm finding taking that idea to that next level of turning it into a story to be quite difficult at the moment. And maybe that's because it's not the right time for me. But when I was working on Wherever You Go and when I've worked on manuscripts, other manuscripts before, I just find you make notes wherever you can. If you are, you know, got your phone nearby and you're able to make the notes on the phone, speak it into the phone and record it if you have to, if that works. I, I have done that before where I've been talking into a voice recorder as I'm driving to work and just rambling on about some idea I've had. And then I write those ideas down later when I've got the chance to write them on napkins. I've done that before too. Just keep a note of all the ideas that you have and then test them out. Don't be afraid to test out those ideas. I was afraid. I had a structural editor who would say, I think you should do this. What if you do this? And I'd be thinking, no, no, I can't do that. But she'd say, just go and write this chapter like this anyway and see what happens. And so I would. And I think that was a really good tip because even if it doesn't work, you've given it a try and maybe from that you can see what might work. So just write these things down when you can and don't be afraid to try something a little bit different and see where it takes you. I sincerely hope you've loved hearing from these talented women as much as I did. These three powerhouses responded to a call out I made live on social media. So just because they all have something in common, which is they were all working writers before becoming novelists, that doesn't mean it's the pathway all future writers listening to this episode need to take. But I hope you found some nuggets of gold to get you motivated. If you need motivation, or if you're just a nosy posy like I am, you've enjoyed hearing some behind the scenes processes and thoughts from Monique, Laura and Tori. Please look them up through the links in the so crisp show notes and if you'd like to be a part of this new format for so crisp as these episodes sprinkle through our normal live interview chats hit me up over email or find me on facebook at crisp copy or instagram at crisp copy stay crisp 
You've been listening to So Crisp with copywriter, copy coach, and consultant Jay Crisp Crow. If you've loved this episode, get all the juicy details and links at crispcopy.com.au forward slash podcast. Make sure you never miss a bite by subscribing to So Crisp wherever you get your podcasts. Want to help us spread the deliciousness? Rate and review this show and share with your mates. Remember, if there's a copy question you want nibbled at, email me straight away right now.